Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com slash build. That's Chime.com slash build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's the news back from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, May 15th. Today, how the Trump presidency is damaging the Trump brand escalating tensions with Iran, and politicians with athletic prowess. What is the Trump Doral Resort? It's in Miami. It is a very large uh, golf resort. So it's got four golf courses, 640-something hotel rooms. If you care about golf, this is like an iconic place. There, That's a place where it's the scene of many, many golf tournaments over the years. So golfers really know it, even if the rest of us don't. That's David Varenbold. I cover the Trump Organization for The Post. And along with his colleague Jonathan O'Connell, David has been looking at the Trump Golf Resort in Doral. One thing you have to understand at the outset is this is a really, really crucial property for the Trump's overall finances. Donald Trump has a lot of hotels around the country, some of them very big, but he doesn't own them. Uh, in fact, most of them, he just takes a relatively small fee just to operate them. So even a huge hotel like his hotel in Chicago just makes him $1.8 million a year. Doral, on the other hand, provides more income to him because he owns it uh, than any other hotel that he owns in the U.S. In fact, about as much as all his other hotels in the U.S. provide to him combined. Because it's not in D.C. or New York, we don't think of it as sort of like the heart of Trump's hotel empire, but financially it is. And we really needed to know, if you're going to judge Trump's overall finances, you really need to know what's happening at Doral. And we didn't until now. All we had was the word of Eric Trump, the president's son, who now runs the company day to day. And he said last year, uh, the Doral is on fire. Which I think he meant in a good way. <laughs> I was going to ask, is that good or bad? It sounds from the way he was saying it, he meant it in a good way. That it is very popular, that it is... Growing, you know, it, it was bringing in new people, it was hard to get in, that sort of thing. Yeah, we're done. I mean, Doral is, is done. The, the, the blue monster is back. It's a monster again, and people are loving it, and it's tweaked, and uh, it makes for an awesome, awesome golf course. And what is the reality We now know the reality because we were able to, through public records requests, get some data that the Trump Organization had given to Miami-Dade County. The Trump Organization was trying to lower its tax valuation by showing Miami-Dade County, look, our resort isn't doing as well as you think. And so they provided all this data about the rates people are paying for the rooms, the room occupancy rate, the overall revenue they're making. All those things, it's remarkable. You see a, a pretty good growth curve going up to 2015 when Trump gets into politics and then a pretty sharp decline after that. One key figure to see here is the net operating income of this club. That's basically once you take the revenues that come in and you subtract out all the operating expenses, what does it take to run this club? What's left over is sort of your profitability that you can use to pay taxes and other things. So that net operating income, which had been about $13 million in the year 2015, dropped 69% to a little over $4 million in 2017. That's a pretty stark drop for just two years, although it left the club still profitable. So you all found this out through documents from, the, from Miami-Dade County. 
we put in a public records request to the Miami-Dade Value Adjustment Board, this government agency that hears tax appeals. And God bless Florida. As we talked about many times before, God bless Florida and their public records laws. They provided us with all the information that the Trump organization had submitted to them, including a lot of details on income uh, and occupancy rates and everything else at the hotel, but also a video of the Trump organization's representative making her case, making their case to the county about why the property should be devalued. So it was like a video of a, of a public hearing or, or some kind of hearing that they had with the county. Two camera angles. That's how, that's how dedicated they are <laughs> to public records in Miami. We got two camera angles of a, of a three-person meeting. Uh, God bless Florida. Yeah, God bless Florida. So, and so in that meeting, you hear the Trump organization's consultant, the person the Trumps had hired to sort of summarize their finances and go talk to the county. She's doing her job. She's making the case successfully that the business should be should have its tax valuation lowered. But she places the blame on the name. So I have the 16 statement. You can see, oh, okay. you know, there's clearly um, been factors that have influenced the hotel. There are, you know, there's some negative connotation that is um, associated uh, with the brand, um, and I think it's pretty evidenced. Um, so she said pretty bluntly. This is because of the Trump brand. This is a good resort that has a bad brand, and that's why it's losing all this revenue. That people don't want to go to this resort because it's associated with President Trump. That's right. (laughs) The quotes are a little in real estate speak, but the most striking one was she lays out what they call competitive sets, you know, sets of other hotels that are similarly situated that the Doral would judge its business against. So, you know, other golf resorts in South Florida. And she said they are severely underperforming that competitive set. I think that sort of sums up her pitch to the county that they were way below where they ought to be. And you'll see that relative to this competitive set, they are severely underperforming. Um, Occupancy is at 52.8 percent, where the market is at 77.1 uh, go go the other way one page. Page eight. Page eight, correct. The rev par penetration is only fifty five point one percent. So, you know, relative to luxury and upper upscale properties, this property is not performing at the same level. So publicly, the Trump family is saying that that this resort is on fire, but behind the scenes, they're actually going to the county asking to pay a, a lower tax rate because they're struggling. That's right. That, that was the core of their case to the county. Reduce our tax valuation because we aren't taking in nearly as much as we used to. And what does that look like day to day in the realities of, of what this resort is like? It's sort of hard to measure a negative, but one obvious change is that the the golf tournament that made Doral famous, it, it went by a number of names over the years. People just called it the Doral that tournament had been going on continuously for 50 years, and it was one of the big attractions of Doral to the average customer, which was most of the other great golf courses that people watch on TV, like the Masters or the places, you can't go play as a regular person. But Doral, you could. And so you could. this was a chance where you could pay money and stand in the shoes of Tiger Woods, play on the course where the pros played. That was you know the blue monster course at Doral where all this golf history was made. That was the thing that brought you to Doral. But then in 2016, after Trump began his presidential campaign by insulting Mexican immigrants and a variety of other people. That tournament lost its sponsor. The PGA Tour moved it to Mexico. So this connection to golf history is severed. And so that costs, you know, that lost them some revenues, you know, thousands of people who would have come to see that event. But it was more than that. It cut the connection that the average fan would have to Doral because they're not seeing it on TV anymore. That's one important reason that the that, that folks have left. The other 
seems to be they're really dependent on conventions. Doral has huge ballrooms, and it depends on a lot of people having their trade shows and their conventions there. And they still have some of those, uh, but they lost some of them. And the business declined because I think because people didn't, you know, you're booking these things two or three years out in the future. And if you worry that you're going to put it at a divisive location in two or three years, you could be in trouble. That if you are some kind of organization that is not explicitly political, that if you had a convention at Trump Doral, that it would appear that you're pro-Republican or that some people might not want to come because it's associated with Trump, so you'd rather just not bother with it and you'd go someplace else. That's the explanation uh, that we've been given, at least. And they've gotten some Republican groups to compensate for it. The Republican Governors Association had a big event there a couple years ago. They'll probably get more. There have been some sort of explicitly pro-Trump groups having events there, but it's not been enough, apparently, to replace the revenue they lost. So the Trump Doral Hotel, which is this crown jewel of the Trump empire, they've pumped a lot of money into this. And taken out a pretty big loan. Uh, the the biggest loan in Trump's portfolio is to the, D- the Trump DC Hotel. But the second biggest loan is to Doral. He got a $125 million loan from Deutsche Bank to buy it. When was this? In 2012. Uh, and so that $125 million loan, that's a lot of money. The debt service on that, just paying the interest, not paying any of the principal, just paying the interest is three and a half or thereabouts million dollars a year. So that the resort has to throw off enough cash that Trump can pay that. And then in 2023, when the loan comes due, have $125 million ready to pay back. So uh, we're, we're looking at a place where there's not just a lot of money invested by Trump, but also a lot of financial risk. This is a place he needs to keep solvent and running and throwing off cash so he can keep his lender happy. So you take all these numbers and the documents that you got from Miami-Dade County, and you go back to Eric Trump. What does he say about all this? <laughs> His reaction, it's funny, there's there's two totally divergent reactions from the Trump family. President Trump says... But being president has cost me a fortune, a tremendous fortune like you've never seen before. But uh, being president has cost me a fortune. I've lost so much money. I don't do, All I do is focus on this country and making great deals for this country. I don't focus on making great deals for myself because I don't care anymore. Eric Trump says the opposite. I mean, Eric Trump obviously is in charge of the business day today. We wrote him about this story, sent him some of the figures we had on Doral and other Trump properties that have lost revenue. And he said, this is disingenuous. This story is terrible. It's a smear job against us. Our properties are iconic and the best of the world. You know, he is extremely positive about everything and doesn't sort of want to say that the Trump brand has been damaged. Well, also because there's there's a funny irony there, right? That the person who's in charge of this business wants to say this business is doing really well. But for President Trump, it actually behooves him to create the image that it doesn't really matter to me how my businesses are doing. My priority is the country or that I'm making a personal sacrifice by being president and I'm not just in this as a way to elevate my own brand. And so you can see that in the differences between their two reactions. Absolutely. I mean, it should be said, though, that President Trump, that's the image he wants to convey, which is that I've sacrificed my business to help my country. That doesn't really comport with the way that he's actually conducted himself during the presidency, which is to visit his businesses as often as he can, to sort of pump them up on social media, and also uh, to use his own campaign and Republican-allied groups to pump money back into his businesses. So he's entwined his business more than any modern president with his presidency, and it's not going well. And I think now Trump is trying to take credit for it not going well. Have other parts of Trump's businesses had similar struggles because of this kind of conflict with his brand? 
we can't see the whole business. So I should say that at the outset. But yes, we in the snapshots we've seen, we've seen this pattern repeat at a lot of other places around the country that have Trump's name on them. Three of his hotels actually took the name off and separated themselves from the Trump brand since he took office. But also we know about his golf course in Los Angeles, his golf course in the Bronx, some of his hotels in New York and Chicago. All those saw revenue decline after Trump got in. If you look at across the Trump brand, as far as I can tell, the only Trump property that has his name on it or has a prominent connection to him that has gone up that I can see at least since 2015 is he owns a pair of ice rinks in Central Park. He also owns some properties that don't have his name on them that are doing extremely well. He has some investments in office buildings in New York and San Francisco that are just going gangbusters because the economy is going gangbusters, which brings him a lot of money, but it doesn't really tell you anything about the the Trump brand because you could work in those buildings and never know it had a connection to Trump. I feel like we talk a lot about the conflict of interest that happens when the president still has business interests. And often when we talk about that, we talk about why it's a problem if he's making money when he is president. But I feel like we talk less about what the problem is when he's losing money as president. That's something that really has no precedent in modern history, a a president with a business in trouble. And is this something that anybody is looking into? It's hard to look into. Congress is trying to get Trump's tax returns, which would tell you something about his overall profits and losses that I can't see. Congress is also looking into one of his big moneymakers, the Trump Hotel in D.C. So there's people looking into his businesses more broadly, but I don't think we know enough publicly about the state of Trump's businesses to say, yes, the next stage is his business is in trouble. Who is he going to turn to for help? David Farenthold covers the Trump Organization for The Post. We'll see what happens. It's going to be a bad problem for Iran if something happens, I can tell you that. They're not going to be happy. They are not going to be happy people. Okay? You You can figure it out yourself. They know what I mean by it. Things have escalated very quickly in terms of our mindset, in terms of our posture towards Iran. But there's a lot of confusion about what exactly the U.S. is responding to. John Hudson covers national security for The Post. And he says that there have been a number of recent events that have led to what feels like a tipping point. Things peaked last week when Iranian leaders threatened to begin centrifuge production. And then over the weekend, there were oil tankers that were sabotaged off the coast of the United Arab Emirates, a key U.S. ally. And then you saw Secretary Pompeo uh, canceling parts of his trip. And uh, he headed to Baghdad and uh, made specific remarks uh, saying that uh, Iran is posing as a threat to uh, U.S. personnel in the Middle East. And then you had uh, national security aides for the president drawing up plans in response to Iranian aggression. So this isn't just a case of President Trump sort of tweeting at Iran and, and making idle threats, right? Like this is something that the State Department is very worried about and that both the U.S. and Iran seems to be taking very seriously. Absolutely. The entire U.S. national security state is in a state of tension right now. You have vessels moving towards the Middle East. You have uh, the State Department stopping the movement of security officials who are planned to be in Washington next week. They're saying stay in the region, prepare for a threat. It's not just a tweet. It's, It's the entire national security bureaucracy being in a state of apprehension and a state of alertness. So if U.S. officials believe that they're seeing signs of increased aggression from Iran, 
what are they what are they doing about it? There's been a few things that have happened in the last few days. Yesterday, the State Department postponed a summit of regional security officers. These are security officers that work in embassies and consulates all around the world, including around Iran. They they postponed that and they said, we actually need you to stand on alert in the region due to threats from Iran. And that has really rattled a lot of people at the State Department. That, that this is something that they're taking seriously. Yeah, it was one of the really tangible signs that they're doing this. You know, this takes months and months and months of planning, and it's a big deal to fly all these people from around the world into Washington. And uh, for a lot of the people that I've talked to directly at the State Department, they re- were really concerned. They're telling their significant others, they're telling their spouses, they're saying this is this is actually really serious. This isn't just a game. This is something that clearly our government is taking deadly seriously. And what is the White House considering as an option to respond to Iran on this? The White House is considering a number of actions related to this, including the movement of mass amounts of troops. The number 120,000 was put out there. Trump responded to... Like moving troops to... To the region, to the Middle East. Now, would I do that? Absolutely. But we have not planned for that. Hopefully, we're not going to have to plan for that. And if we did that, we'd send a hell of a lot more troops than that. So on the one end, it's reassured some people that we might not be imminently considering moving these troops. But on the other hand, it also suggested that the president was open to the idea of a massive movement of U.S. troops, the likes that haven't been seen since the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War, and the earliest stages of those conflicts. Yeah, it's somewhat of a mixed message, and it's hard to know how exactly to read that. What are the president's advisors saying publicly about what's going on? The president's advisors are saying basically two things. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in his last uh, trip to Europe has said that the United States does not want war. We're looking for Iran to behave like a normal country, and that's our ask. And we have applied uh, pressure to uh, the leadership of the Islamic Republic of Iran to achieve that. We fundamentally do not seek a war with Iran. And um, the movement of troops that you described, I'll leave to the Department of Defense, but we've also made clear to the Iranians Uh, that uh, if American interests are attacked, uh, we will most certainly respond in an appropriate fashion. At the same time, he has said that they are willing to respond ferociously to any attacks on members of uh, U.S. military or U.S. military personnel. And they've also said that that includes attacks by Iranian proxies. Now, those are can be forces like Hezbollah or they can be forces like the Houthis. Of course, uh, Iran does not have command and control uh, of, of necessarily all of these forces. Uh, it does have uh, tight linkages in some cases, loose linkages in others. And so that has raised the prospect that some sort of miscalculation or some sort of confusion or a small type of action could really escalate into something much bigger. And another person that President Trump is probably listening to is the National Security Advisor, John Bolton. What has he said about this and and what do we think that he's telling the president about this now? John Bolton has been a proponent for regime change in Iran and for military action against Iran for many, many years. There is only one answer here, to support legitimate opposition groups 
that favor overthrowing the military theocratic dictatorship in Tehran. So he hasn't talked openly about specific military action the U.S. is going to take against Iran, but he has consistently previewed that the United States is willing to take all options when dealing with Iran. And, and let me be very clear, it should be the declared policy of the United States of America and all of its friends to do just that at the earliest opportunity. Thank you very much. Do you think that the president agrees with that, that he would be game to take military action against Iran? You know, it was interesting. President Trump was asked about his relationship with John Bolton recently, and he said that you might be surprised, but I tempered John from time to time. John is a uh, he has strong views on things, but that's OK. I actually tempered John, which is pretty amazing, isn't it? What he was essentially conveying is that John Bolton is much more hawkish than he is when it comes to the use of military force. And that he said that he has people like John Bolton who advises him. He said he has more, quote, dovish people that advise him. And ultimately, he makes the decision. So that was the president pretty clearly saying that, yeah, me and John Bolton don't hold the exact same views. But it's a great sort of uh, good cop, bad cop situation. So what are members of Congress saying about this as they're watching the White House potentially start a war with Iran? Well, from Democrats, you have very strong concern. They are being very vocal about their worries. They think the administration may be on the precipice of dragging the U.S. into another war into the Middle East. To have backed out of a diplomatic deal and blundered us closer to war, and now we see what the potential consequence would be, 120,000, it would be ridiculous. Republicans who are much more skeptical of Iran, they want answers. They've asked questions. And I would urge the State Department and DOD to come down here and explain to us what's going on. Because I have no idea what the threat stream is beyond what I read in the paper. And I think there are a lot of people in my shoes that are going to support standing up to Iran, but we need to understand what we're doing. So I would urge the administration to come down here and, uh, and, and brief members of Congress about the threat as they see it coming from Iran. They have tended to really blame Iran more than anyone else, but there is a desire for clarity from the administration about just exactly what it's referring to when it says there's a threat from Iran. And while the relationship between the U.S. and Iran seems to be getting honestly worse and worse by the day, you have allies in Europe and Asia who are looking on and seeing this. And and what are they saying? European officials have been very clear that they're quite uncomfortable with this rise in tensions. And they have actually sort of done a both sides sort of approach to this, that uh, yes, of course, we share values with the United States, many more values than we share with Iran. But we see both sides escalating this. Uh, and we we would like to see a de-escalation. And so it hasn't been a typical response that often happens where you have a united West, you have the European allies and the U.S. on the same page. They Clearly, the Europeans are feeling more of a mediator role. Because they're still in the position of trying to defend what's left of the Iran nuclear deal and trying to continue with what had previously been negotiated with what Iran was willing to give up and what the U.S. and, and, and Europeans were willing to give to Iran. 
Absolutely. When the Iranian leadership last week threatened to begin the production of centrifuges, uh, that was a really alarming thing for the Europeans to hear because for them, that was the sign that this nuclear deal that they view as the pinnacle of European diplomacy is beginning to unravel. And so they want to do everything they can to protect that. John Hudson covers national security for The Post. For nearly four decades, lawmakers, journalists, and judges in D.C. have run a three-mile race called the Capitol Challenge. If you're a politician and you want bragging rights for fastest person in Congress, fastest senator, fastest lawmaker, you earn it here at this race. I'm Bonnie Berkowitz, and I'm a graphics reporter at The Post. The race was on Wednesday morning. Bonnie has actually run it more than 20 times. For politicians, this sort of competitive spirit isn't isolated to the campaign trail. Bonnie realized that a lot of them were super competitive when it comes to athletic events like this. We picked 20 feats that people had done in office that we thought were of varying degrees of badassery. She and a panel ranked elite athletic feats completed by lawmakers. Finishing an Ironman, running a 50-mile race, biking a century, racking up multiple marathons, all while serving in office. Clearly, they're competitive because to get where they were, to become a national politician, you have to have competed. You have to have beaten several people, probably lots of people, to get where they are. But I was really interested to see how that carried over into another realm. Okay, there's record. All the people I spoke to were, you could just feel how excited they were and how much they loved it, how much they liked to compete, and how much they wanted to win. But among senators, I'm still number one. Max Bacchus said outright. I can remember how John Thune really tried to beat me. He's pretty kind of, kind of put out that um, he didn't beat my record. <laughs> I wasn't going to let any other senator beat me. I wanted to be first. And I was amazed at the tense they used as well. Several of them weren't saying, I'm going to try to do this. It was, I'm going to do this. Hey, Bonnie. Hi. You are connected with Senator Cinema. Kirsten Cinema. Iron Man looks impossible. I'm going to do it. I am not a natural athlete. Like, I, I don't have a great VO2 max. Um, I'm not naturally thin. Like, I'm, I, I don't have natural talent. Mm-hmm. And so for me, becoming a competitive age group athlete is a real challenge because it's very difficult for me. And that's why I like it. It pushes me to work really hard to meet challenges that I thought were too hard for me. Or that I couldn't do. And why is the why is the athletic portion of your life so important to you? I mean, that's a funny question to ask a senator. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but anyway, we had a panelist of seven people who ranked them on a scale of one to five. And when we collated all their answers and worked it out, we have a list. So Representative Jean Schmidt was at the top of it, and she ran more than 40 marathons while in office, but her fastest was a 349.05. Just behind her was Tammy Duckworth, who was then a representative but who is now a senator, who did the Chicago Marathon in a hand cycle while she was running for Senate. 
Bart Gordon. He holds the title of fastest lawmaker in Congress. And he set that at the Capitol challenge. He won it 20 times, including the last time when he was 60 years old. And he has held that title. Nobody has beaten that since 1995. Bonnie Berkowitz is a graphics reporter for The Post. On Wednesday morning, Senator Cinema set a new record for fastest female lawmaker. To see The Post's full list of lawmaker badassery, along with the honorable mentions, head to postreports.com. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you're on Twitter, you should follow me. I'm at Martine Powers, and I sometimes post behind-the-scenes insights from the stories on our show. And, as always, use the hashtag PostReport to share your thoughts on the latest episode. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.